0: Uh, well, it is great to see you all. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the moms of small babies today. I see there's a, there's a couple in here. Tanya, it's great to have you with us. And uh, see you there, Amy and Bianca. I know one of the things that we, uh, the challenges, I mean, I've been chatting to Linda about this. There's so many challenges in coming to church with small babies that those of us that have got kids a little bit more grown up have been through. And, we, and I'm grateful to God for my babies, but I'm grateful for the season that I'm in right now as well. But it does make a difference to have the family together. And we really love having you guys here. And the ladies upstairs that are watching on the video in the mother's room. We've, I don't know if you know that we've set up the mother's room upstairs now. And so they've got a bit more space. They've got a TV there and have access to here, everything that's going on. And, but I believe God is, is stoked to see his family come together, young and old, all together. And so it is great to have um, a lot of young people like ourselves and old people like Sajith around. You might not know that he turned 50 this week. Happy birthday, Sajid. In fact, who else had a birthday this week? Did anybody else share? There you go. Zonda. There we go. Why don't you guys stand for a second? We just want to give you a, pla- a hand. Well done, our birthday people. Matty, well done. Great. I want to ask you your ages. So on Sunday, I'm uh, riding in a bicycle race that starts at 11 o'clock at night. 75 kilometers, and can you believe it starts at 11 o'clock? And you want to know why it starts at 11? Because of Ramadan. That's right. So, we can, uh, so that the guys that are fasting can still have a meal after they fast and have it digested and then have time to ride after, afterwards. Nowhere else in the world would you start riding at that time of night in a bicycle race, which is probably still going to be like 35 degrees. And it's a, a reminder again for us about this city that we live in, this country that we live in, that is so different to, uh, to our own country. You guys can start the clock, otherwise I'm going to have this endless preach. And uh, I would enjoy that, but not sure everyone else would. And so we've been going through this resident alien series, and resident alien just means that you're a, that you're a foreigner, you're, you're resident in a foreign land. We, this is where we live, this is our home in inverted commas, but we know it's not our final home. It's not our destination. And we started off last week by looking at Abraham. And uh, one of the things that stands out for me with Abraham is that he set the priority of his building somewhere else. And it's kind of like the idea, some people come into Dubai and they come without their family. And they come with the objective of of living here for a season, earning money and sending money back home. And maybe the money goes home to put the kids through school, or maybe the money goes home to build a, a house there or something like that. But While they're living here, there's this expectation that the the place where they come from, something is being built. And Abraham lived like that. He lived in this life, building for the life to come. And it's one of the lessons that we need to learn from him. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16 says this so brilliantly. And I want to read it as I start today. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. It's gone through the, the heroes of the faith. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know that if you were to measure the life of Abraham, you would actually say you didn't score that high. I mean, Abraham never built any great cities like some of his successors would do. He never ruled over a great kingdom. He had this promise of nations that would come from his loins, but he really only had one son of the promise. I know he had others as well, but one son from his wife, Sarah. And it's quite amazing that uh, he still is called the father of the faith. In the New Testament, he's one of the heroes of our faith, not because of what he accomplished in this life, but what he invested in the life to come. And we're going to have an opportunity today to look at another one of those heroes, the great-grandson, actually, of Abraham, whose name is Joseph. And this was a man who looked at life through the lens of eternity. Imagine you could put on a set of glasses and and, uh, you saw everything no longer just in the way that your natural eyes see them, but with the lens of eternity on them. What is the impact of this action going to have, not just for the now, but for all of eternity? What is the impact having on this man or this woman? And uh, I'm absolutely convinced, friends, that if we pay attention to the life of Joseph today, that you can walk out of here with your life transformed. And I don't often say that. I, I truly believe that the lessons in the life of Joseph, that if you were to embrace them, even while I'm preaching today, that you can actually begin a process that will change you from here on out. Now, one of the ways that you're going to do that is, is you just receive by faith what God is saying through me today. I'm just a servant. It's his word. But as the truth comes and it resonates within you, say, Lord, I want that for myself. And I'm going to speak about um, four things in the life of Joseph, his perseverance. I'm going to speak about his um, stewardship, his forgiveness, and his favor. And in any one of those things, as, as, it, as it kind of hits here, grab a hold of it. Some people grab a hold of it by saying amen. So as it's like, because you know what amen means, eh? Hey? Means let it be or so be it. That's what it means. So it's like what when, when I declare that you are a child of, of the favor of God and you go amen, it means let it be. Let it be for me, Lord. And so don't feel um, embarrassed today to be shouting out and grabbing hold of what God has for you. But pretend that you're an African-American church and shout out Jesus and hallelujah. And you can even stand up and shake your hands if you want to while I'm preaching. It's not going to put me off. We're going to start off, though, with a video. Each week, we try and show you a video from somebody in the life of the church, just to show you how this hero of the faith is reflected in the stories that we're living out today. It's not some disconnected thing. It's very real for us. And so, this is John Watkinson. set
1: up the company. <clears throat> Things went well, but I set it up in 2008. So, as you can imagine, 2009 hit, and we found ourselves in 2010 getting into quite a lot of trouble um, this was financially the business ended up in all sorts of difficulties um, we had cash flow problems as, as is common for most businesses but um, our cash flow problems got pretty bad we had very little in the pipeline and we had a lot of debt at, at one stage i was about a million dirhams under and so we were, we were i was i was literally um, facing prison and so as you can imagine, during those times things weren't that peaceful in the house. Uh, Shelley, my wife, was very worried, um, as was I. Um, I was literally getting threats from my suppliers uh, for legal cases and I would have lost them because I, would have, I wouldn't have been able to pay and it was totally my fault at the end of the day. However, one of the things that I knew God had said to us was that we should stay, we should stay in Dubai and stay and fight. Now at one occasion I have a specific memory of going off to England and uh, my mum and dad had actually paid for me to go along and um, so off we went and it was a little trip, things went well and, um, and on the way back Shelley actually stopped me and said I, d- I don't want to go back to Dubai, you're going to end up in prison. And I don't want to sit there with a young child, which was Titus, my son, um, at that stage. And um, I don't want to sit alone in Dubai. I'm going to stay in England. Anyway, we sort of discussed it and we decided we were going to come back. So I came back to Dubai, but that was a low blow in my life. And I, I really thought, why am I here? What am I doing? God, you promised things were going to be different to this that you promised that we were going to find ourselves in a place of um, abundance and space and yet here i am sitting in 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 my house which i can hardly pay for i can hardly pay electricity bills i can hardly I, we'd sold our cars um we we, we we literally had nothing at that stage it was it was tough i remember one stage we didn't even have food to feed uh, titus my son and so we gave him the last packet of noodles and then At one stage, miraculously, someone turned up at the door and just gave us 500 dirhams, which was enough for us to put a little bit of petrol in the hire car that we had for a short while and um, and go and get a few groceries so that we could last until another small check came in. But at this stage, I remember sitting and praying before God and saying, why, what's going on? And um, God spoke to me very clearly and he said, I'm going to give you what I have promised you, but stay in this city until you've been clothed from power. We knew God would come through. God is true to his word, God would come through, and so we had to. We, we really had no choice, um, because I couldn't just leave, I couldn't leave Dubai with the debts I had. It would, it would just be wrong, and, um, and so we decided we're going to stay and we're going to fight. About two, maybe three months after that. so two or three months of not great <laughs> um, living, we, we won a, a project for, it was probably worth about half a million dirhams in total, and that was enough to just get the main um, legal cases off my back, and then, and then God continued to come through, and we, we won other projects, and over time we are able to pay off all those things.
0: Lord, a hand. Thank you, Father. I think one of the things that strikes me most about the testimony from John and Shelley is that they recognize, and this is important for us, that their story was a part of something bigger. Dubai is no better city than any other city in the world. I mean, God can call you here he can call you somewhere else. It's not this city in particular. But knowing that you are called somewhere is so significant. And John and Shelly understood that the decisions they would make in that season would have eternal implications. And uh, this is what we see in the life of Joseph as well. He communicates this truth so powerfully. His, um, most of you will know the story about Joseph um, born the son of Jacob, his, uh, his, he, whose name was changed to Israel. So he was the father of the tribes of Israel. And uh, he was... One of his, He was a favorite of his father's children. His brothers got jealous. They sold him into slavery. He ended up working for an Egyptian as an attendant in his house, was falsely accused, ended up in prison, and ends up, by the miraculous working of God, suddenly the prime minister of Egypt and one of the most powerful men in the world. His father then moves with the family. Jacob moves with the family into Egypt, and uh, they live, he lives out the last days of his life in comfort and in God's amazing grace, and then his father dies. Uh, these brothers that sold him into slavery come to Joseph at this time. And uh, they're quite worried because this incredibly powerful man is the one that they've betrayed. And now that their father is dead, the sense of obligation he has to take care of his brothers suddenly is removed. What's he going to do? I mean, I think Joseph could have had them taken out like this. He could, with a, I mean, he was in Egypt, for goodness sake. He was only the Pharaoh was more powerful than he was. And so they kind of come groveling to him and they make up the story. It's a complete lie about what their father had said about how he must take care of them and look after them and not kill them, basically. And, uh, and I, you kind of, when you think about what Joseph went through, you wonder about this response that we read in Genesis 50 verses 19 and 21. After his brothers come to him, Joseph says this, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. So he puts a responsibility. With them, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done—the saving of many lives. And I think when we read things like this in Scripture, it's a little bit like Hollywood movies. It's easy to read and go, "Yeah, well, that makes sense that he would say that." But put yourself into Joseph's shoes. Imagine that you um, are loved by—I um, uh, was putting put off there by the screen that went on. Um, put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and your brothers. Actually, betray you like that, they throw you in a pit, and they talk about how they 're going to kill you. I mean you 're lying in the pit and they 're having this conversation. Then the older brother comes along and says look don 't kill him let 's rather sell him to slavery. He was trying to save him, but the other brothers thought that was a great idea, and while the older one was off, they literally did that. They sold him as a slave and Joseph loved his father and was loved by his father and his mother as well and after he was sold into slavery he probably thought, and it was true in the case of his mother, that he would never see his mom and dad again. That relationship that was so precious to him was completely broken off. And he didn't see his mother. She died giving birth to his brother some years later. And the question that we need to ask is, how would we respond in that situation? It's, and it's not just the trials and the hurts and the betrayals, but how do we respond to success? How do we respond to adulation? In Proverbs 27 and verse 21, it says this, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, But man is tested by the praise that he receives. And sometimes it's not just the trials, but also the successes that test how we will respond. And the thing that I want to say about Joseph today is he responded knowing that he's building for eternity, seeing everything through a, a kingdom lens or an eternal lens. And that was the way he built his life. I'm, I am I love the sovereignty of God. I don't know about you. I'm massively comforted by the confidence that God is in control, and you see it in the story here. But confidence in the sovereignty of God is not the same thing as fatalism. It's not the same thing as kind of just sitting down and folding your arms and going, well, it doesn't matter what I do, what will be will be. It doesn't matter whether I choose the right way or I choose the wrong way, God's purposes will come to pass. There There is a truth in that his greater purposes will come to pass. But one of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that our choices and our responsibilities make a massive difference. And you, you encounter, go through the Scriptures, every um, hero of the faith, men and women, they come to a crossroads and they choose to trust God. They choose righteousness. They choose peace or whatever it is. And because of that, God is able to release something through their lives and into their lives that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And so our choices matter. And if we are prepared to learn from Joseph, this resident alien, I believe we too can live these eternal lives or these lives with this eternal perspective. And one of the things that comes with that, friends, is peace and joy, no matter what your circumstances are. It keeps us. God doesn't want us to be, one of the phrases Mike used to work is, he doesn't want us to be like a fiddler's elbow. We're up and then we're down, and we're up and then we're down. Some people's Christian walk is like this. When things are going well, hallelujah, praise Jesus. When things are hard, it's like, oh, God doesn't even exist. Oh, praise Jesus, oh God. It's like that's how they live their lives. Actually, God wants us on this continual upward trajectory where we are becoming more like His son Jesus Christ, where the fruit of the Spirit is increasingly manifest in our lives. And it may accompany greater influence, it may accompany greater wealth or whatever. That may be a part of the story, but that actually is the unimportant part of the story. The important part of the story is the way that we reflect Jesus Christ. You can be lost on an island somewhere, and the purpose of God, even if you're all alone, is to make you like His son, Jesus Christ. There's a benefit for it for his kingdom, but he wants to do it in you because he loves you that much to start off with. So four things about Joseph. Number one is that he just got on with it. <laughs> I mean, he has this guy who's faced all these situations, and he just keeps going for it. He had perseverance. And We live in a world where, where um, we, it's a disposable culture. When your digital camera breaks, if you even have a digital camera anymore, because most people just have used their phones. But if it breaks, you go to the shop and say, can you fix this? Most of the time, the guy will go, yeah, no, but I've got a new one you can buy here. And that's the case. Almost any appliance that you throw out the old and you just buy a new one, we, we've got into this idea that's a throwaway culture. We have this sense of immediate gratification. We order something on Amazon, and if it can't arrive within three days, we're like, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's like, it's got to come now. I don't want to. Um, <laughs> my, my son, he's been wanting to buy a phone, my youngest one. And so he's been cajoling me and begging me and all sorts of things for this phone. And now he's tried, his, his plan is actually buy the phone for me and you can just take my pocket money for the next few months. I said, well, whatever. I said, you save up the money because you ain't getting nothing until you've actually saved the money to get there. But he wants to live like the rest of us. I don't want to have to wait. Let me buy it right now. Buy it on credit and I'll sort that, that out later. And what happens is it's gone beyond just our shopping proclivities. It's moved into our relationships with people. Our marriage is affected by this disposal culture. It's, it's hard. I don't think I'm going to bother to fight. This might even take three months to sort out. Actually, I'm just going to get divorced. Do you mean It's like uh, we, we, we deal with our kids that way. We deal with our friends that way. And God wants to break in and teach us to be a people that persevere. Joseph was thrown into the pit, we read in Genesis 37. At that point, he could have given up. Sold into slavery, at that point, he could have given up. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of rape and was thrown into prison and at that point he could have given up. In Genesis 40 we read that even though he had um, reached this agreement with the cupbearer of the king when he interpreted his dream, the cupbearer when he finally got released from prison didn't even remember Joseph and because of that it seems like he spent an extra two years in prison unnecessarily and he didn't give up. He could have but he didn't and the question is why? And I think it's like this testimony we heard from John is that he he understood what it meant to hold on to the promises of God. God had spoken something over him, and he judged God to be faithful to that promise. I think he must have learned this from his great-grandfather. I don't know if he actually met his great-grandfather, but he would have passed those stories on to Joseph's grandfather, Isaac. And maybe as they sat around the fires, Isaac, as his grandfather, shared the stories of his father, Abraham, how he was old in his body and, his, and Sarah was as good as dead in her inner workings, her mothering parts. And I mean, everything in our eyes, what we see in the natural tells us it's impossible for that to happen. But it says that Abraham believed him that had made the promise. He didn't believe the circumstances around him. And I think Joseph was the same. He believed God because of who God was and the promise that he had made. And to have this eternal kingdom mindset convinces us that in the end, we will be vindicated. If you trust the promises of God, you'll never be let down. I want to say, friends, in the life to come, definitely, but in most instances, in this life as well. One of the things I've said, a few weeks ago, we had a friend here called um, Peter Munnings. He leads a church in in Johannesburg, and he was here. He's doing some work in, um, in Dubai, and he was sharing with us something that we had shared with him, I don't know how long ago, 10 or 12 years ago, I can't remember. We'd gone through our own struggle for, with Linda falling pregnant. For seven years, we have been trusting God and she hadn't fallen pregnant. And it was like this real wrestle in terms of um, our faith and our trust of God. But through it, we learned something that God is faithful. And so one of the things we say to people that are battling to have children is, if that's a desire in your heart, I believe it's a God desire and God will answer that prayer. I don't know how long it'll take. I don't know what form it'll take, but I promise you, God is faithful. And he said to us, because now he's got um, a son. He said we, we hung on to that thing. It was, it was that promise that we, we held on to through the dark time. And God is faithful and gave them a son. And that they live in the fruit of that thing today. Friends, you've got to hold on to the promises of God, which means you just keep going. What happens with the devil is he wants to get us to drop our heads. He wants our hands to hang by our side. He wants us to, to stop even trying. I love people that when the circumstances are against them, their chests are out, their heads are up, their stride is still strong because I know God is in this. He's gonna bring us through it. Don't give up, be a man or a woman of perseverance. The second thing about Joseph is that he was trustworthy with other people's stuff. That means he was a good steward. I wanna read this from Genesis 39, verses two to six. It's about Potiphar, this Egyptian master that he had. It says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. But his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with any, anything except the food he ate. Isn't that amazing? So yeah, you've got this guy, Joseph, who could, I mean, if, if I had been betrayed by my brothers and sold to slavery, and I ended up being working for this Egyptian master, I think I might have dragged my feet a bit. Right, you're kind of like, whatever, got to go to work like, like some of you do when you go on a Sunday to work like. You know, we drive along that freeway cursing the whole way that I've got to. I can't believe I've got to go to work, but Joseph didn't do that. When he was put, he had this. He was given this responsibility, and he and he proved faithful with that responsibility. And I, I don't know if how Joseph processed this in his head. I don't know if one of the things he thought was like, well, if I was working for my father, this is how I'd want to work. And so he just made a decision that he was going to be a steward of other people's things, and. Um, I think that our ability to respond in the good and the bad in life in that way is one of the means by which God produces Christ likeness in us. And uh, he would have had every excuse to do a half-baked job. Am I right? I mean no one none of us would kind of go that stinking Joseph look at him he's just working like a like like a he's not working like a slave he's just working, you know, half baked. I don't want to care for what I say there but he doesn't. And we see the same pattern when he goes to prison in Genesis 39. The same story happens. Joseph, is falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. and um, But again, he, he just turns out to be one of these exemplary men who does this incredible job. And so the prison warden trusts him with everything. And we have to ask, why? Why does he do this? And friends, I believe it's because Joseph understood that there's a long game here. He didn't just look at each piece and go, well, that, you know, doesn't matter what I do you. He understood that every season he was in was a part of something much bigger than himself. And Jesus speaks about this in Luke 16, verse 10 to 12, when he says this, the such powerful words, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And I, I, I think it speaks so powerfully into our lives here, both the ministry that we might have, our involvement in a local church, but in the company that you work for. In the, this is where you find yourself. I don't know what circumstances led you to the place of work that you're in right now or the boss that you have or the situation you have, but stop thinking about it as just an isolated, boxed-in thing. Start thinking about how this connects into God's eternal story. And start being that faithful steward in the place that you're in. This is one of the reasons why we can have integrity in the workplace when everybody else lacks it. When it yeah, when everybody else lacks it. So when, when people are leaving early from work and you staying and making sure the job gets done, when people are grabbing money out of the, the kitty box but you are being absolutely faithful with the finances, that sense of integrity flows out of stewardship. It's that thing that I know that I'm not just working for these people. I'm working for God. I don't know how working as an attendant in the house of Potiphar is setting me up for my future. I don't know how being faithful in the prison is setting me up for the future, but I trust that it is. I trust that as I'm faithful here with the small, God's going to open up and give me access to the more. And we saw that in the life of Joseph. He goes, in one minute from being a prisoner to being a prime minister, from one minute from being a nobody with no influence to being somebody with more influence than almost anybody else on the face of the earth at that time. And as we'll see just now, it's actually, it's so much a part of God's redemptive story. In order for Israel to move, which is Jacob and his his sons, to move to Egypt, for them to live there for the 470 years that they would live there, to come under themselves, to come under oppression so that God could deliver them with Moses, this incredible introduction of the Passover lamb. Joseph had to be in that place at that time. And so all of these things connect together so this one grand story of God's redemption can be written out. And I know it's so easy for us to look at our lives and think, well, my life doesn't matter. That's fine, Rob, you're a pastor, so it makes a difference because of this or that or it's fine for you because you're a CEO and you have influence over this many people or you run your own business or and we always point at somebody else it matters their life matters but friends part of what we have to learn from this is that we have to accept that our lives do matter that's what being a steward is It's, it's it's something you take by faith the Lord is saying to you your life matters your faithfulness in the small matters the things you do behind the closed doors in your house your, your, your care for your children, your, your love for your wife, all of those things matter because God says they matter. Something we receive by faith. And when we do that, we live with an eternal lens. Thirdly, Joseph wouldn't hold a grudge. I love that about him. He was a man of forgiveness. And um, he, uh, I think this is probably the most powerful thing about his life. He wouldn't allow bitterness to take root in his life. He was betrayed, he was mistreated, he was falsely accused. Um, I, I mean, I've said this before, one of my worst things is when somebody accuses me falsely. I do make mistakes from time to time. I mean, once every few years, I make a mistake. And, and I'm the first admitted on those um, occasions that I, of course, I made a mistake. There, No, it obviously happens more than that. But what grinds my bones is when I'm trying to do something really good, and then somebody accuses me of doing something bad. Doesn't that, doesn't that rile you? And I, like you, I thought, I, if you look at the life of Joseph, he's got such a reason to be bitter. He's got such a reason to sit in those in that pit and, and think, oh, jeez, when I get out of here, I, I'm going I'm to do this, I'm going to do that. No, that's going to be too quick. Make it linger a lot longer than that. I'm gonna, and, he, and he thinks it through. And then, then they actually sell him to slavery. Like, he's walking along now behind this camel, like, being dragged off to Egypt every step. There's an opportunity for him to be plotting again for the, for the revenge that he's going to carry out in his brothers. And then he gets put into Potiphar's house and he, and he works so well. You know what it's like when you do when you just are doing a great job. Everything you're doing is good. You, you, the company that you're working for goes from just making a profit to making amazing profit, through your ideas, through you there late at night going, "Hey, this," and you come the next morning to your boss and say, "If we did this, it could change this." And the boss goes. Geez, I think you've got something, yeah, and he puts it into practice, and there's this transformation of the company, and then in, in, in Joseph's case, I think he began to relate to Potiphar a little bit like a father, he'd lost his own father, had gone from his life, and he was, he was close with him, and he trusted him, and then Potiphar's wife starts to make advances on him, and she like sidles up to him and says, "Ooh, what a lovely chest you've got, and he would like, hey, lady, what are you doing, like, you'd back off, and then maybe he would get to his room at night, and he would think, man, I mean, hope. I mean, I don't know. Everybody battles a little bit of pride every now and again. He kind of thinks, "Man, I'm a really good son. I treat my father well." This woman, I can't believe he's got her. But I would never hurt him like that. I've resolved because because of my love for God, I would, and my and my submission to this man, I will never ever hurt him, no matter how great the temptation. And then his wife tries to grab him. One day, she grabs a hold of him, tries to pull him into his bed, into her bed. And he escapes by leaving his, his cloak behind and runs off. And she screams out, he raped me, He raped, or try to rape me. And, the, and Potiphar comes back and he doesn't go, hey, Joseph, because man, he must have heard some rumors, hey? I mean, I think everybody in the house knew that Potiphar's wife was this loose woman. And he doesn't come to Joseph and go, hey, look, what really happened? He just gets him thrown straight into prison like this. And again, the sense of hurt and betrayal in Joseph's life, why did he not allow bitterness to take um, root in his life. Now, one of the things that can happen, friends, is if we linger too long on our hurts, it'll take control of our lives. If you just, if somebody is hurt, you go to a quiet place. When I was in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago, I ate a worm. Sheila and I ate worms. And you know that song, Nobody loves me, everybody hates me. I think I'll just eat worms, big, fat, juicy ones, tiny, little, skinny ones. Watch out the swigel and squirm. I'll bite off the hairs and suck out the juice and throw away the skins. Don't know that song. <laughs> we ate the skins as well, as it turned out. So we sucked out the juice. But, but people can do that. They can kind of go sit in the corner and suck their thumb like this and go, oh, everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. And they just allow this, this bitterness to just grow inside of them. Or somebody comes to the church and they offend you. Yeah, I, I, you know, you get, I, you get greeted at the door and the first three people walk in. I go, hey, hi, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. And then I turn around just as you're coming in the door to greet me. And you go, oh, check it, Rob turns his back on me. I've actually had people genuinely say this because I didn't greet them. I, it was, I wasn't trying not to greet you. I just went to go do something else. But people can become offended. And uh, there's a guy called John Bevere that wrote a book called Offense, the Bait of Satan. And that's exactly what it is. It's how he traps us in our lives. And Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't sit in the corner and sulk. He doesn't come up with ways of destroying the world around him. That's what bitter people do. That if I'm going to be broken and destroyed, I'm going to break everything else around me. Instead, Joseph remains constructive. He, may, he remains productive. And then in Genesis 42, Joseph's brothers appeared to him um, at a time when it's, uh, the, the famine had spread throughout the land. And the only grain that was to be had was actually in Egypt. And so from all over the world, people were coming and bringing whatever they had to buy grain. And they come into the room and Joseph is responsible for distributing the grain. And it says this in verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. And I want to say that Joseph does test them. He's, I believe he's forgiven them, but forgiveness is not the same thing as just entrusting yourself to somebody that's hurt you um, before. And Joseph understood that these men had hurt him and he wanted to see whether there'd been any change in their hearts in the time that had gone on. And uh, there had been. And then in chapter 45, verses one to three, there's this incredible picture of forgiveness and of reconciliation. It says in verse one, then Joseph Joseph could no longer control himself. And before all his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Friends, unforgiveness is the biggest enemy to being able to step into the things of God. I wonder how many marriages and ministries and lives have been ruined by people that have been unable to forgive. And if I if you can walk out with one key this morning, is that forgiveness is absolutely essential. And if we look at Joseph, we ask, well, how does he do it? Verse 47 of the same chapter, he continues and says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives in a great deliverance. You see, there's something of seeing God's great plan being outworked even in the, uh, the pain that comes your way. It doesn't mean that we only forgive people when we see a divine plan. Or that we excuse somebody's wickedness because somehow they get lucky and God ends up using it. Because God will, somebody once said, God will win with whatever cards he's dealt. So God will take any situation and be able to turn it for the good. It doesn't give us moral excuse to do immoral things. We have to take responsibility for our lives. But consider this. Jesus died on the cross that we might be forgiven. That's the eternal story that we connect into. And he tells in Matthew 18 this parable, a story about a king who was owed an extraordinary debt by a man. And this man comes into his presence. It's, it's more money than we could ever dream of, an impossible, literally an impossible amount to pay back. And the king says to him, the time has come, you need to pay this amount back. And the man has no option because he cannot do anything. He throws himself at the mercy of the king and says, king, please, please have mercy on me and release me from my debt. And the king in the story, moved by compassion, releases the man from his debt. He he just writes it off in the same way that our debt against God, which is what our sin is, God through his son, because every debt that gets released has to be paid for by somebody. And the king in this instant pays it. And God pays the debt through his son, Jesus Christ, that we might be released of our infinite sin against God himself. And this man that's been released of this debt walks out. Can you imagine? I've got to go visit the Sharjah police this week and go have some negotiations with them and say, guys, please, I want some mercy. I don't know if I'm going to get any there. But imagine I walked in and I said, guys, give me some mercy on my fine year. And uh, they said, no problem. We write the whole thing off. You kind of walk out with a light and say, like, woo, happy days you walk out. Can you imagine how this guy must have walked It's been released. It's, it's off him. I'm, I'm free. I'm no longer responsible for this debt that has weighed upon me, this guilty conscience I've carried continually, and he walks out, and he and comes across a friend that had borrowed some money from him, Paul borrowed a few hundred dirham from me. I said, Paul, it's time to pay me the money back, Paul says, hey Rob, I, I just, I can't do it right now, I'm between jobs, um, there's a payment supposed to be coming through, and I go, stuff you, Paul, if you're not going to pay me back, I'm throwing you and your wife in prison, and your children, he goes, hey, please, just give me a, have mercy upon me, he doesn't even know what's happened, That I've been led off this great debt. He says. Appeals for mercy, and I say, No mercy. And Paul gets thrown into prison. And in the story, the king hears about this and he calls the first servant in. He said, What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you can just imagine it being incredulous. Now, think about it in terms of forgiveness and what we've been forgiven. And God says to us, I've forgiven you so great a debt against me. Everything, I wrote it all off. I, it cost me everything. It costs the son of my life that you can be forgiven and yet you would hold on to the small, by comparison, offense you have against somebody else. Forgiveness comes because we realize we tie tied into an eternal story, which is God's redemptive plan, God's restoration, God's removal of hostility and bringing us back into relationship again. There is no place, friends, for unforgiveness in the Christian. Can I say that again? There is no place for a Christian to hold on to unforgiveness ever. You can say, but Rob, you don't know my circumstance. I want to say there is no place. If you were sexually molested as a child by somebody, you must forgive that person. It doesn't mean that you allow them back into your life. It doesn't mean that justice must not be done in their life. That's got nothing to do with forgiveness. Forgiveness is the bitterness that you carry, the, 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 the bondage that you carry and your desire for them to be punished and hurt. You, re, you, you have to release that. Years ago, I had a friend of mine hit by a, a car when he was riding his bicycle on an early Sunday morning. And uh, was 18 years ago. His son is now 18. His son was in his, in his mother's womb at the time of the accident. He's never seen his son. He was brain damaged. We've seen him, but through his damaged brain. And um, we went to court with his wife. And uh, the man that had, was drunk, and he hit my friend, he was up. And the prosecutor had his wife come up, her name is Cindy, and said, Cindy, you you want justice to be done in this situation? And she said, she said these words. She said, you know, I do. I and mean, I do want justice. But I want you to know that I do forgive this man. I'm, I'm releasing him in terms of my hatred and anger. I release it. Justice must take its course. I mean, he's, he's driven drunk. He's broken the law. He must, there must be justice must be done. But I, I not me, I'm not going to enforce the justice through my bitterness and my harshness in his life. And like that, God... And then another man came up, and he had been injured in an accident. He had, had cut his calf quite badly. And this man, testified, he goes, this man has ruined my life. I hate him. And he just went on and on and on like this about how this man had, had, had damaged him. And afterwards, the prosecutor, we went around the back, and the prosecutor came out. And she walked right past my friend's wife, and she went straight to this man with a hatred. And she stuck her hand out. and She goes, sir, you've won the case for us. And I thought, what a tragic picture. This woman is the one that's free and following the ways of God. She's seen the eternal picture. This man can only live for the now. He can only see the injuries he suffered, the impact upon his job. He can't see the bigger picture that God has us in. And friends, we have to live with forgiveness in our hearts. And I want to say in your marriages, learn how to forgive quickly. Your children learn how to forgive quickly. Your friends, your boss, your workplace, we have to learn how to be people that forgive quickly. Last of all, is that Joseph lived like a son. And uh, there aren't too many great fathers in Scripture that you can go to and find. man. Well, yeah, has a great illustration of a father in Scripture. And Jacob's <laughs> not much better than one of them. I mean, imagine you've got, he ends up with 12 kids. Imagine out of, you've got 11, and you choose one to be your absolute favorite. And the other, the other 10 know that they know, they're not even close. And so jo, jo, uh, Jacob just doted over Joseph. It was like, I like, mean, um, he'd walk into the room, and all his sons would be there, and they, all their faces would light up to see their dad. And he would kind of look like this and go, Oh, Joseph, come here, my boy, and kiss his son like this. And then when his son was old enough, he makes him this, this cloak of many colors. In, uh, it actually says in Genesis 37, verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And then in the next verse, listen to what it says. Remember, these are the older, stronger brothers. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so I want to say, parenting one one don't love one of your kids more than one of your other kids, okay? They're all, they're all uniquely beautiful uh, as God has given them to you. And so Jacob, you get a cross next to your name for that one. But one of the things that he does get a tick for is that he loved his boy unconditionally. And Joseph learned from his earthly father what it means to be loved like, that way by a heavenly father. He walked around with his with his rainbow robe on, I don't know what that meant in those days, I wouldn't wear one today, but he walked around with this rainbow robe on, and the rainbow in the old covenant was a picture of God's promise that he would never bring judgment again, and I don't know if it reflected in this, but I, I, felt, I feel like Joseph walked around understanding I'm a son of the covenant, I know what it means to be a boy loved by God, and um, he was immature, and some of that confidence, you know, kind of kind of overflowed in arrogance, and some of his um, sense of security may have overflowed in vanity or whatever it was. But as he grew older, the lessons he had learned remained with him. And I think when he was, he, he just understood what it meant to walk in the favor of God. Whether he was a slave, whether he was a pr- prisoner, or whether he was a prime minister, he understood what it means to walk in the favor of God. And I, I think we should walk like that. I, my earthly father loved me unconditionally wasn't the perfect earthly father. There were times where he gave me some um, uh, spankings. Uh, that's not even the right word. It, was, it just felt much more than a spank. It was felt like a whack. Um, and most of the time I deserved it, I have to be quite honest. But some of the time, very, very, very rare occasion, I probably got it when I didn't deserve it as well. But I knew he loved me. The one thing I never, ever doubted in my life is that my dad loved me. And it's filled me with an incredible sense of confidence in his love for me as well. And maybe your dad hasn't loved you in that way. And maybe you've, you've learned to be suspicious and you, you've learned to even expect some things to be going wrong because that's just my life. I expect things to go wrong. But friends, if we're going to live with an eternal lens, we have to change our understanding about things. We have to come into this place of identity as sons and daughters of the Lord God Most High. And that's why it says in the Scriptures that it's the, the Spirit of Christ that inside of us that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. You see, even if your dad on this earth didn't love you the way that you ought to be loved, if he, if he made the mistakes and all men are imperfect and all women are imperfect, and so it's possible that that is the case, but even if he didn't, the Spirit of God can come in and cause a change to take place and clothe you with a multicolored um, robe of Christ's righteousness, and I want to say this, and favor. See, I believe we should walk around expecting to be in his favor. When I'm a prisoner in part of or a slave in part of his house the favor of God is upon me so there's success in what I do when I'm a prisoner in the prison which is a good place to be a prisoner then I expect the favor of God to be upon me I want to read uh the last scripture you guys okay Romans 8 there's a friend of ours that's actually in hospital at the moment called Michael Eaton and he's he suffered a severe heart attack and the doctors are not confident about the outcome right now and we've been praying for him and I want to ask you please to continue to pray for him his name is Michael Eaton he's an Ephesians 4 gifted teacher and I remember one time in Peter Marisburg being in a place where he was teaching and, and Michael's not the most impressive looking man I mean he dresses worse than anybody I've ever known in my whole life he's got like the anti-anointing of dress sense and he's um he doesn't have the most impressive voice his hair is leaving him behind and you know it's like there's nothing impressive on the outside I don't don't think you would mind me saying that. But as he was teaching this day from Romans chapter 8, and he taught on our assurance of salvation, and uh, he taught upon the unconditional love of God, I watched this man begin to grow in front of me like this under his gift. And under the anointing, he became like this 7 foot, 10 foot angel that was preaching the word of God. And it was this scripture, scripture that he was teaching from. And I want you to hear it today under that anointing. What then shall I say in response to these things? It says Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it, God, it is God who justifies. Then who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. Who, who, friends, shall separate us from the love of Christ? will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's give him a hand for that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. And friends, I want you to lay a hold of that. I mean, you, you say with your mind, you can say to me, Rob, I don't understand it. Even up here, maybe I don't even believe it. But in faith, reach out and take a hold of it and say, Lord, I want to apply this cloak of many colors to my life. I want to know what it means to walk in your divine favor. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm talking about a confidence that knows wherever I am, I'm in the will of God. Whatever I'm doing, if I do it in righteousness and in faith, I'm doing the will of God. And it's, it's achieving an eternal purpose. Last thing. Joseph makes the most weird funeral plans. He says to his, the sons of his brothers, when I die one day, I don't want my bones to be left here in Egypt. I want you to, to kind of wrap them up because if you go read about in Genesis 50, he was embalmed and put in a coffin. So it was good that he was where the, the, um, the Egyptians were because they had that whole embalming thing down. And so they embalmed and put him in a coffin. And he says, when you leave this land one day, you take my bones with you. Do you know how long it would be before they left the land? 470 years. Joseph saw 470 years ahead that they would not live here. He actually ends up, it says in Joshua 24, it says, as for the bones of Joseph... When the people of Israel brought, which, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Amor. 500 years before, his dad had bought a piece of land and his bones were buried there in the promised land. And I don't think Joseph even stopped there. He believed that in the burying of his bones there, he was building an eternal destination. He was aiming for an eternal destination. And what we need to leave with today is understanding, friends, that this is not all that there is. This life is not all that there is. As we go through hardship, as we go through trials, as we face hurts, as we face betrayals, as we go through successes, as our business flourishes and suddenly we have great wealth or whatever it is that comes our way, do we do it always with a sense of my eyes are up, fixed on the author and the perfecter of my salvation so that I cast off everything that hinders me my unforgiveness, my temporal nature, my selfishness, my lack of integrity. I cast it off because I'm fixed on him and I'm running this race towards that end, towards that prize. When we do that, the perspective of everything else in this earth changes. Suddenly when we face the trial, it's with a, with a different set. This isn't the end of the world. Have you heard that saying? That's not the end of the world. We should say that about anything we face. Even my friends, when we face our own death, we can say this. This is not the end. As Michael Ethan lies in that bed, one of the things that he knows absolutely certainly, whatever happens, whatever happens, this is not the end.